the theme <coughs> this morning on the seventh day of our retreat together. It's meditation on uh, objects. Before beginning, just like to mention the the plight of the circumstances of all the good men under the temple uh, over there. So we heard <coughs> reports that during the night there are some uh, rats running around uh, <coughs> under there and either the noises of the rats or the rats knocking over people's cups and things <laughs> have uh, waking people up. So as I said into the kitchen, we may be into saving all sentient beings, but doesn't necessarily mean having to share our space with them. So we spoke to the cooks this morning, and the cooks <coughs> will bring today five live rat box catchers, which we will put under there tonight. And we hope by the morning we'll have five rats. <laughs> and then look at the rickshaw waller will cycle off into the sunset. <laughs> we would do a few pujas and mantras with Jaya's guidance <laughs> and hopefully they, the rats won't be back before the tenth day. They'll be back but we hope they won't get back in time. In India, there's a common view that rats were politicians in their past lives. <laughs> true. And the bigger the rat, the bigger the politician <laughs> in the past life. <laughs> and we all know who we're talking about. <laughs> all right. So meditation, medita, meditation on objects. <laughs> on the uh, first day of uh, the retreat, the basic instructions were to meditate on an object. And in this vast field of diversity of existence, there are, and therefore it means, a whole variety of range of objects. Out of this whole field, essentially we took one called breathing. And we meditated on the breath, meaning we gave mindfulness and attention to the process of breathing. In that establishing of that uh, relationship, we wanted to experience and to see what happened in our connection with the breath, the way the breath touched us, the impact that it had as we breathed in, the cells, the expansion of the chest and diaphragm area, and experiencing the outgoing breath. This having two or threefold <coughs> purpose. One is to keep heart, mind and body together, for sure. Secondly, to contribute to the dissolution of stress and tension, to contribute to uh, relaxation, to feel much more present 
as a relaxed and conscious human being. So the breath not only serves as a function in life to keep us alive, but it also serves as an extraordinary process to help us keep, help keep us in touch and present. And the breath can be a wonderful resource and is a wonderful resource for deepening of mindfulness, for a certain development of a concentrated power, to have access to an inner sense of well-being, and also the breath pro can provide a great deal of insight for us. Being very much aware of things arising and passing, the breath coming and going, as a reminder that all things, all events and experiences, including our life, arises and passes. And it also can provide insight for us and clarity for the many moments when you and I are not in touch with the breath. What's actually happening at those times? What does the tendency, the habit, the drift show? Are there stories which are going on? Daydreams, fantasies, memories, planning. And therefore being much more aware and extremely clear about what's happening when we're not in touch with the breath. When we are clear about that, when we're seeing that clearly, there, then that clarity is called insight. That clarity is knowing what's going on with ourselves. And so the mindfulness of breathing as one object provides us with a resource for itself and also provides us with an opportunity to see what's going on with us when we're not in touch with the breathing. We then uh, included and give equal care and attention to the other postures, walking and uh, standing, meditation, and to quite some degree the same kind of uh, process and interest is taking place. We walk slowly up and down. And often, and particularly for beginners, it really can feel like in the walking up and down, boring, nothing is happening, etc. It's only telling us about a particular state of mind that's going on. In fact, in, in every moment, in every expression of the movement, there is a tremendous amount, obviously, which is going on, both with the vibrations, the sensations, the contact with the feet with the earth, what's coming to eyes and ears. The whole experience is full, diverse and dynamic. But boredom, reactivity, dullness can cloud all of that over and we put the blame on the object. Oh, walking is boring, standing is boring, sitting is boring. Oh no, it's not. Just the mind is in a reactive state, all too easy, all too human, and as we do in this world, when we're not dealing with something very well, when we're not very meditative, then we have to find fault, we have to find blame, we have to see what's wrong. And then the citations, the policeman, the judge, or whatever comes in. And we want to be vigilant about the distortion, the shadow of that, upon the basic relationship of subject with object. The shadow comes in and distorts the way things are. We then expanded, as the days went by, the uh, field of attention further. And in that, we began to address the body, the physical life. And clearly, the relationship to the physical life um, matters a great deal to us. 
It matters by necessity. When you and I stop and just give some reflection every day to the amount of care that we have to give to the body. Washing, brushing the teeth and cleaning and clothes and food and toilet. All of those activities from head to foot all require tremendous amount of time and attention day in and day out to body <coughs> maintenance, to looking after the body. Plus dealing with the health range of healths and sicknesses uh, that take place. And there's also attending to the body at the bare elemental or physical level as well. It's said, it said as well how valuable and important it is <coughs> to sit with a straight posture. If one has back problems, of course, and some people of you do, then of course do use the horizontal posture. Keep it equally very, very still. So easy to be indifferent, and in the boredom, easy we often react to the situation. <coughs> and one of the ways that we might start, just the, the whole body drops its posture. We'll uh, be looking for the wall to uh, uh, lean up against. And all of this helps, uh, stops rather, the natural flow of attention and presence. And it takes a little effort at times, quiet determination at times, just to keep the posture upright and steady and let the energy flow through the body. Even with doing that, we also experience various kinds of pains that arise in the body. With the pains that uh, arise, we know that the movement of the body, if there's a knee pain, stretching of the knee, if there's a back pain, stretching out of the back, or changing the back, will often, but not always, dissolve the pain. However, sometimes with life, pain just doesn't go away because we move. And it isn't easy in life. Because pain arises, whether we could be the Buddha of the Buddhas, pain will still arise in the body. And that means for us that the exploration of pain with the power of mindfulness of attention is an important feature of living wisely. So for example we are experiencing some pain in the body. The very strength of the pain is determined <coughs> to quite some degree by the desire to get rid of it or get away from it. We shouldn't underestimate the potency of the wanting to be away from or get rid of as an additional pressure which acts like wood on the fire of the pain. It isn't easy, but it is our practice to see whether we can be with pain, explore it in a relaxed way, without any other part of the body contracting, turning our attention to the field of pain, and just learning to work with it. We may approach it from the outer edges to the center, from the center to the outer edges, from above or below, but the interest and the focused attention is to go in directly into the locality of the pain and see whether that can be changed. Sometimes, because we're not resisting, there is a greater sensitivity, if not vulnerability, around the pain. That might mean 
that in not fighting with the pain and going to it, it might increase, it feels like it increases the level of pain. What we're saying really is that the filters of resistance have been let go of or dropped away. And therefore there's bare attention, that's the subject, to the object called the pain, there's an intimacy of exposure, and there is the possibility of some change in the energy flow in the transformation of the pain. Sometimes, in the relaxation that takes place, in the willingness to be with the pain, sometimes <coughs> that pain begins to dissolve. It may dissolve totally, and it ceases to be any kind of pain, or it may be left at the level of an unpleasant sensation emerging out of the body. It isn't easy to know how much pain to endure. It may require some exploration and experiment, but certainly in the experience of pain, to move, to explore it, and if one finds oneself controlling, fighting, resisting, tightening up, and one can't get out of that, better to move. Simply better to move. Mindfully, moment to moment, to change the posture, with the intention of coming back to the original posture. And in this way, we can open out cellular life, since pain is a pressure, and all suffering and all problems are some kind of pressure inside. That at the physical level, the pressure with the pain, causes the pain, generates the pain. So exploring it helps to take that pressure on, of the cells on each other. There, energy can flow through more freely and with that a considerable degree of reduction in the pain. We shouldn't um, underestimate the healing power of mindfulness, the healing power of attention and the ability to contribute to the whole health of the mind and body. Not totally, of course not. We need, at times, medication. At times we need the, 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 the skill of, uh, of the physician in complementary and uh, conventional medicine. But there's a great deal that we, as human beings, for our own well-being of the heart, mind and body, can do in the power of healing through the power of uh, relaxed, focused, caring attention. <coughs> With the body as well, it is not only a contribution to harmony of body and mind as an essential feature of the process, but also teaching the pointing out what is called learning to see things as they are, learning to see things rather clearly. What we experience in the arising of the I, of the self, of the sense of me, frequently is a strong identification with the body as oneself. We are so used to it that we barely question that perception, that interpretation. So we will say right now, oh I am sitting here. So the eye, in its movement from subject, <coughs> lands on the object called body. The body is something I can attend <coughs> to, I can look at, I can describe. And in the movement of the eye, landing on the body, 
One says, I am sitting here. The I cannot sit. The I has no knowledge of sitting. The I has no experience of it. The I cannot take the form of sitting. The I is just an I. But its movement on its object says, I am sitting. It's not. It's the body that sits. I can't sit. The body does the sitting. The body takes the form. The body takes the shape. And so, in a teaching of not-self, one of the most difficult areas to understand and to go in deeply in the Buddhist teachings <coughs> and creates many areas because it's such a challenge for our whole world view, our whole life view. The teachings remind us and point out to us a simple formula which is to be applied in the meditation when there's enough relaxation and clarity. And the simple formula that is applied is very simple. This is not me, talking about the body here, this is not me, this is not myself, this is not who I am. This is not me, this is not myself, this is not who I am. And therefore, in the summary of this, it is called anatta, not self, not me, not myself, not <coughs> who I am. And therefore, when there is greater clarity with the perception, with the seeing, or shall we say, with the subject to the object, when there is greater clarity there, then there is the pure sakshi, that means witness, the pure witnessing of bodily life only as bodily life. Not as me, as my, nor myself. And there is an intimacy of connection with the bodily life because it's not being filtered down by the ego, by self, by all the projections, by all the holding, by all the identification with, which distorts the potential to see the body as the body. Just as elemental life, just as an organic process. When we can't see that, we ca and can't see the, as it were, the bare reality of it, we enter into what you might call, might call a hyper-reality, to quote one of the uh, French critical thinkers. The hyper-reality is that we've got into ourselves such a state with the body, we're so convinced it is who I am, the self measures itself constantly by the body. Young, old, I am a young, old, Beautiful, thin, fat, ugly, short, blah, da, 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 da. Whole industries are being built on this identification with the body. Well, identities are built up um, out of it. This is hyper-reality. It's, it's where the reality, the hyper-reality, the projected reality, becomes more significant than the bare actuality. That's the whole industry of people with, the, with this physical life. No, the exploitation of it from the <coughs> magazines to, to cosmetic surgery to, 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 to. So, it's not an easy task to have a simple, <coughs> pure, clear awareness 
intimately connected. There's no alienation. It's not a teaching of detachment in any way whatsoever. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's a teaching of connection with consciousness, called the subject here, with the object, called organic life, called the body, called physical life, called elemental life, and experiencing that free from I, me, and my. <coughs> Not saying I am the body in one moment and then believing that, the next minute make saying, oh, I'm not the body, but it's my body, as if it could then change and suddenly become a possession. <coughs> a different relationship. None of them are essentially true. So we work with the body <coughs> in terms of our relationship to a clear, harmonious relationship through working with pain, through the sense of well-being, through the stillness of the posture. And we work uh, with the body, shall we say, in giving attention to it and just learning to see it more clearly, which means just as organic life. <coughs> What's extraordinary, the clearer the relationship to it is, the more the understanding, the greater respect the clearer the relationship, the more free we are from I, me and my, the more care we'll take with the movement of the body, the greater the we'll care we'll take with um, uh, diet, with exercise, with posture, with the way of being, those who are imprisoned to ego around the body, constantly in conflict with it constantly struggling between the wisdom which says have a clear relationship to it and the old ego patterns which are obsessive, compulsive, needy, self-obsessed. We want to see clearly, perhaps for the first time in our life, body just as, not me, myself <coughs> and mine, but just an expression of organic nature. With awareness, with respect with sensitivity, with love. And this looking at elemental life is quite different from the scientist. For the scientist to look at elemental life in their function, they are able to look what the old Buddhist text, not from the Buddha, by the way, he's never used the word, but in the old Theravada and Mahayana text, of what is called kalapas that there is a power of attention with the bodily life which can see subatomic particles, can see the subtlety of vibrations of, of uh, atomic life taking place uh, there. But for the scientist to give attention to, the scientist has to exclude emotional life. Has to. Dharma teachings and practice s says to us in a way, the whole attention but the feelings and the presence and the attention is given to. Not just a cerebral interpretation, but the whole being, because we want to transform life. Both have an interest in looking at bare <coughs> elemental nature, the scientist, in his field. But it won't transform the scientist in the way that focused attention with the whole being taken in interest can, can transform us even though we're looking at the same object. We went from breath. We went to the body. <coughs> we became aware 
of uh, various states of mind which arise. And it's again, it's an extraordinary factor with life that as human beings, we have this remarkable capacity to experience and this is important, to know and name a state of mind. It's not that we are a state of mind. We can actually observe it. We can actually give a description of it to ourselves. We can give a clear, as best we can with language, a description of our state of mind to another. It would only be possible to give a description to a state of mind if, so to speak, it can be an object which can be looked at. If we couldn't look at it, we couldn't describe it. We wouldn't know it. We would just be a state of mind constantly changing, <coughs> constantly going on, and there could be no hope of any liberation, any insight, or any realization. But the very fact that as men and women we are able to see a state of mind and really notice this is a state of mind which I am experiencing. This is a state of mind which has come to me. In which the object, so to speak, has arisen with the subject, so to speak, awareness as the subject, has come to me. Because it's an object, I can give a constructive language around it. I can talk about it. I can describe it. Since it is an object of interest, I, the subject, cannot be the object. I cannot be my state of mind or the state of mind. But I'm so used in the movement of the tendency, in the formation of the habit, in my way of thinking and perceiving, in the way that I interpret events of life, I've come to believe that I am my state of mind. I've come to believe it more than anything else, in fact. And I find, therefore, that I move backwards and forwards between some space around the state of mind which I'm looking at and the potency of the attachment to it. The potency, the strength of the identification with I become it. And I find, as a human being, that if I try to pull back from the state of mind, it's the equivalent of pulling on a, on a rubber band. Here we go, pow! So the idea of being detached from a state of mind doesn't serve me. The word detachment is nowhere in the Buddhist texts. Not to be found in the text anywhere. And so the idea of pulling back indicates a resistance to, a fear of, a withdrawal from. But I might pull back, I might be able, as it were, to control my state of mind, but not for long. It will kick back. There will be a reaction to it at some point later on. Sometimes, in the sitting meditations, <coughs> one has to be aware and wise with the strength of the movement of what is going on inwardly. 
And what that means is, at times it may be totally appropriate just to sit, give lots of care and attention to the breathing, lots of care and attention to the, uh, the body for relaxation, working with pain, seeing it as just the wonder of nature, of organic life, freeing oneself from the I, me, or my, all with the states of mind. But if it's too intense, if one feels one's pushing too hard, trying too much, for whatever reason, and one sense pressure is building up, then the body and the inner life and mind and heart and the wisdom may well be saying to us, move. It isn't always appropriate to be sitting in the meditation hall. It isn't always appropriate to have this uh, mantra, oh, I'll just sit through it. It may be unwise and unskillful at times, and it's far more wise to be out of the meditation hall, outside, maybe slow walking, maybe fast walking, maybe just move it, moving, moving the body. And this is one of the many reasons uh, the Buddha has given, and it's a beautiful aspect of the teaching, equal interest and equal care and attention to sitting, walking, standing and reclining. And he himself said prior to his awakening that at times in the forest, and those who have lived in the forest in the, and uh, know the nature of the uh, forest, said at times he had terrible, as he said, fear, his two words were fear and terror inside of himself. Person's experiencing a lot of fear and terror inside of herself or himself. You can't sit with that level of it. The body won't allow it. One has to be out of the posture. And he said, I would walk up and down through the night in the forest until I had walked through this fear and terror. Just kept walking up and down, up and down, up and down, till he walked through it. And this ideology, uh, sitting is the answer, is a, is a tragic ideology. It puts undue pressure on men and women to uh, keep sitting through things. Sometimes you have to walk through things, stand through things, move through things, dance through things, flow through things, so that the movement then reflects, of the being, reflects what's going on inside. Not to make a, an ideology out of sitting. In some of the mind states which are uh, arising, and again, the indicator, or one of the indicators that things, the key technical term is dependently arising. Technical term, dependently arising, is it makes it clear to us and reasonably evident to us that all conditions are dependently arising. And what that means, that that awareness and appreciation of that, as the Buddha said very simply, owing to that, whatever that is, this arises. Owing to the various conditions, this arises. And we keep getting clear reminders of this in our meditations, in any of the four postures, when we are experiencing what just dependently arises. That the conditions were there, 
time, the place, the circumstances, the inner and outer life, and the whole variety of conditions make something happen. Sometimes, what goes into the object makes it a problem. It's important here. What goes into it <laughs> makes it a problem. And any event in life, what the mind makes of something as part of those conditions can make it a problem. And what we're trying to do is not get rid of object, not get rid of subject, learning to understand the dynamic between the two and simply take the problem out of it. Dissolve the problem which arises, which somehow is caught up in some way or other between <coughs> subject and object. For example, sometimes, we are looking and the state of mind which we are experiencing, it might be called calm, relaxation, spacious, loving, joyful, equanimity, that means steady, stable, peaceful, there's nothing rubbing up between subject and object. There's no pressure on the object called breath, called body, called the here and now, called the state of mind. There's no pressure on it. And in the absence of the pressure, we sit, we're in a relaxed state of being, and we can say to ourselves, in this moment there's no problem. I'm not experiencing a problem with life. I'm not experiencing a problem with the here and now. Not experiencing a problem with what's dependently arising called a state of mind, called the breathing, called the body. And these moments of non-problematic existence, even just the moments, are vitally important moments because those moments remind us of the relativity of all problems. I need to feel, I need to know the experience for myself of, non -pro of a non-problematic state. Not making anything hyper or special about it, just to experience it. And I need to know what is going on when a non-problematic state, just being present, relaxed, spacious, Connected. What happens that that, whatever it is, has become a problem? What is the dependently arising condition or conditions that made it so? Why does something which was not a problem become a problem? And that movement, you want to know clearly. We can live life in an utterly non-problematic way. So the Buddha has spoken of, in terms of <coughs> states of mind, calm and restless. He takes 
as it were, as it were, opposites or complementary, calm and restless. Spacious and contracted. Mind which feels developed and the mind which feels undeveloped. Just using and looking and learning to work with the states of mind, the mind which is greedy. Greedy or desirous in Dharma means I want something and if I don't get it, it affects my peace of mind. This is desire. I'm wanting something and it affects my peace of mind. But the mind without desire. So at times, again, we can be sitting, walking, standing, whatever it might be. Not only is it important to recognize acknowledgement and acknowledge the desire force in the mind, but also to recognize when it's not in the mind. Just to sit, walk and stand and be able to put hand on heart and say, in this moment, there is nothing I desire. There is nothing that I want. And to have the sense and the feeling of what that's like to not want anything and there's no pressure inside to really feel what that is. So that possibly a movement and an engagement with life can take place which is participatory, active, loving, without the pressure of desire. Without the pressure of desire. So, breath, working with the body, looking at the states of mind, treating all as objects, seeing what goes into the objects, breath, body, state of mind, and what changes it and makes problem out of it. Having the freedom to move if we feel it's too much pressure in just the posture. Sometimes because the story is so strong. Often the memory or the history can be so strong. And therefore we just need to move, let the body move, let the energies move and help <coughs> that contribute to the movement. Perhaps we need to do some extra yoga, some tai chi or, or whatever during the day just to allow the energies to flow so we can move through the event more, uh, more clearly. Sometimes in non-problematic life, in insight into that. We can just open our eyes and there's the bare colour, the bare perception of the recognition. We just listen and just hear the sounds come. Uh, Dharma teacher serving the Dharma, just, just listening. Sometimes there's just the, the bare smell taking place. The bare taste, the other sense of taking place. The object is the bare touch. I touch the floor, I touch my knee, I touch something. There's a feeling and a thought arises. When one looks in the bare attention to that, is that object called what I see, is it a problem? No. Is what I hear a problem? No. Is what I smell a problem? No. Is what I taste a problem? No. Is what I touch a problem? Is a feeling that arises a problem? Is a perception that arises a problem? Is a thought that arises a problem? 
when we've really given attention clearly with full interest there is no such thing as a problem the world is not problematic in its true nature it is not problematic and there's no world outside of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch feelings, perceptions and thoughts there's no other world, this is the only one all being revealed in consciousness itself is not in a state of a problem and if there's no problem there's no Dharma if there's no problem, there's no Four Noble Truths if there's no problem, there's no practice there are no Buddhas and there are no non-Buddhas sometimes we just take to look and look afresh and say wow there's no problem in a sight, in a sound, in a smell, in a taste, in a touch in a feeling, in a thought, in a memory, in an idea there's no stress in it, there's no worry in it, there's no fear in it, there's no terror in it there's nothing horrible about it just dependently arising conditions and empty of being anything real, substantial unproblematic we look at this relationship of awareness, should we call it yesterday in the instructions of the Subhana important thing speaking about the significance of awareness the movement of the inner life by habit, by tendency, by practice, by interest will move to the objects they're not objects in themselves we're just giving that label on them the watch and recorder and this and that sights and sounds, they don't know there are objects they don't know that it's just that the awareness of makes it as it were an object it's not really this at times you and I in our experience don't always wish to be concerned with the world of objects there are plenty of times when you and I just don't want to be bothered with all that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel and think about, etc. The world of objects. So there is an encouragement, and a precious and beautiful one, just to rest in the awareness itself, which today I'm calling, but it doesn't, calling the subject. So there is a resting in an awareness, and this resting in the awareness means I have no real interest in the moment of the objects. No real interest means not that they die or they disappear, but I'm not concerned with what the colours are to my eyes. I'm not concerned with what the sounds are to my ears, the smells to my nose, the taste to my tongue, or the touch to my fingers or other parts of my body. I'm just interested in the that which reveals 
I spend so much of my life interested in what is revealed, called the five senses, called what's going on in my mind. But the profound, extraordinary element is that which is engaged in revealing. But we have become so preoccupied with what is revealed through the senses, through the state of mind, we, th we for neglect, we forget that extraordinary element which is revealing, which we call here consciousness, which we call here mindfulness, which we call here awareness, which is the light, metaphor, light, which is showing what's happening. This light, enlightenment, this light is extraordinary because without it there would be no world. Without of it, we wouldn't know anything. And therefore, quote-unquote, the subject is inseparable from the world of objects because it reveals them. Could, for the serious Dharma meditator, for the one who wants to know the way things are, could this awareness which reveals so-called objects and these objects confirm the awareness could this light of awareness reveal more than just objects? <coughs> could it, as it were, speak to us of something else? Immediate. Because we want to find out what is the truth? What is the reality? How are things really? Is my past, my ego, my tendencies, my habits, the old which is dead and gone, is it entering into situations constantly stopping me from really seeing how things really are? And before I die, before this world is over for me, whatever. Maybe I could find out something so profoundly, clearly, that even death is over as well. It is also just another object. So we work with the breathing. We work with the body. We work with the states of mind. We just abide with that uh, awareness and not concerned with the diversity of objects which are arising. When we have that which we call object, not only for calmness and clarity, but to see whether it's being viewed as I, me, or my. And perhaps through that process, something insightful and and uh, illuminating and liberating can arise and yet we haven't stepped back one centimetre from the immediacy of life. No detachment, no withdrawal, no trying to get to something beyond. This surely is to be paying the greatest respect to this remarkable existence. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings 
see into the nature of things. May your beings be liberated. So let's have a quarter of an hour for some uh, sitting together. <laughs>